Hello, everyone, and welcome to CBA's At The Bar, a podcast where we have unscripted conversations with our guests about legal news, topics, stories, and whatever else strikes our fancy. I'm your host, Maggie Mendenhall-Casey of the City of Chicago Corporation Counsel's Office, and joining me today as co-host is Jen Byrne of the Chicago Bar Association. Hey, Jen, how are you doing today? Hey, Maggie, great to be co-hosting this episode with you today. I'm excited about it. I'm excited, too, for today's topic. The topic is reparations. Should they be given? And if so, who should get reparations? And what form should reparations take? These are questions the U.S. has been pondering since General Sherman made the largely unanswered call for 40 acres and a mule to be allotted to emancipated slaves during the Civil War. Now, the city of Evanston, a suburb north of Chicago, is tackling the question of reparations. Evanston's program uses revenue from cannabis taxation to give reparations to families impacted by the city's historical housing discrimination. And joining us today to discuss this topic is Mayor Daniel Biss. Mayor Biss was elected to office in 2021 and serves as the mayor of Evanston. He previously served as a member of the Illinois House of Representatives and Illinois Senate. Prior to pursuing a political career, Mayor Biss was a professor at the University of Chicago. Mayor Biss, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Of course, I'm really excited to talk about this topic with you. So in my preliminary research, I found that about 3% or 3% of uh, gross tax on cannabis is going to be used to fund reparations in Evanston. What was the genesis of the plan to use cannabis taxation to fund reparations? Yeah, that's that's right, Maggie. Um, and I should start with a comment that's both, uh, I think, kind of morally important, but also practically important. You know, I'm an elected official. We all love taking credit for everything. Uh, but it's important to say that this was set in motion before I took office. Uh, Council member Robin Rue Simmons from the Fifth Ward of Evanston really spearheaded the uh, initiation of this project. And and I say that again, first of all, because I think credit needs to be given where credit is due, but also because uh, much of the initial work happened before I was uh, on the scene. But there had been discussion in Evanston about implementing a tangible reparations program for quite some time, and, and the council was really committed to doing it. And then the question came, how are you going to fund it? It's not It's not straightforward. It's not obvious. And it's not financially easy for a local government that's always somewhat strapped for cash. And as that discussion was going on, the state legalized the recreational use of cannabis. And that generated a, a new revenue stream that went to municipalities. And so now you had this confluence of two things. First of all, there's a new revenue stream coming into the municipal coffers. And second of all, that revenue stream is generated by the legalization of cannabis. And I think we can all acknowledge that the war on drugs and the enforcement of cannabis law in particular was at a very minimum in principle uh, viciously, in practice, I should say, viciously racist. And I think many would argue, uh, even in intent, uh, it was an effort to essentially enforce a new form of white supremacy. So the thinking went, not only do we have this new revenue stream coming into the municipal coffers, but listen, it was generated by trying to reverse these decades of awful racist uh, criminal justice systems. And so it would be sensible to utilize that revenue, not just you know to the 
put to the city's general fund and kind of broadly benefit the population at large, but rather specifically to the city's effort to repair some of the harm that was caused by the city's own participation in white supremacy over the years. You mentioned, um, Mayor Biss, that the genesis for the program sort of went into motion years before you took office. And as I was doing some research into the program, I noticed that in 2002, there was a House resolution that passed that called for a federal commission to study slavery and its vestiges. And I'm curious what your insights into that study were and what was yielded from that study and recommendations that stemmed from it. Well, you know, Evanston has been interested in this issue for a long time. As you indicated, there was a resolution passed back in, I think it was 2002, uh, when this was really a, a very cutting edge thing for a municipality to be to be supporting. I would say this. This is a tough issue. It's a tough issue morally. It's a tough issue emotionally. It's a tough issue politically, quite frankly. It's also a tough issue legally and, and practically. And when you have a tough issue like that, you could talk about it literally forever. We could spend the next thousand years arguing about the political, moral, legal, and practical ramifications of the question of reparations. And Evanston, I think, took a leading role in spurring some of that conversation to happen. But then we took a leading role a few years ago in saying, you know what? Those discussions aren't resolved. They're going to continue that these issues are going to be something complicated to work through for a long period of time, but the moral urgency of actually beginning to repair the harm caused by our governments doesn't allow us to wait until all those conversations are over before we cut the first check. And in fact, we have a moral responsibility to, while acknowledging the complexities, nonetheless move forward and begin to engage in the tangible work of repair. And that, that again, as I indicated, was, was really, that commitment was made a few years before I, I took office as mayor and, and was spearheaded by Robin Rue Simmons, who was on the city council at the time. Uh, and it was an act, I think, of, of acknowledgement of the uh, weight of the moral burden uh, that, that rests on our shoulders. But also, I think it was a visionary act that has had spillover consequences in other municipalities and other jurisdictions. And hopefully, we'll, we'll move this cause forward beyond just our own municipal borders. And Mayor, I appreciate the acknowledgement that you gave to Alderwoman Robin Ruth Simmons and others who helped to spearhead this initiative. I think she was a former Alderwoman of the Fifth Ward, which is a historically Black ward in, in Evanston. So I, I do appreciate the acknowledgement. And to speak a little bit more about the specifics of the program. So I know that it includes a, a tailored amount of years from 1919 to 1969. Can you talk a little bit about the qualifications for the program? Who qualifies for reparations? Why or what importance is 1919 through 1969 for the program? Yeah, thanks for that question, Maggie. You know, people hear reparations, and the first place their mind goes to is chattel slavery, uh, with for very understandable reasons. I think we in Evanston feel that there is a profound moral responsibility for our country to repair the that foundational damage. But we also know that as a city of seventy eight thousand people, that's not a project that we're going to be able to take on by ourselves. And so, the reparations program that we are embarking on here in Evanston. Is, is actually quite a bit more narrow. It's specific to 
to the concrete harms that the city government itself perpetuated. And so one of the critical steps uh, was done in partnership with uh, the, the Evans, with the, the Shorefront Institute, uh, which is run by a historian by the name of Dino Robinson, uh, who's a really extraordinary uh, local historian here in Evanston, together in partnership with the Evanston History Center. And they did a significant amount of research, produced a document that is really kind of the foundational document of the Evanston reparations work that's available on the city's website and, and I think really worth having a look at that documents not just broadly the evils of systemic racism and white supremacy, but the concrete things the city of Evanston as a corporate body participated in, which primarily were in the area of housing and enforcing of segregation and restrictive covenants and redlining and, and so forth. And, and what they concluded was that not only was white supremacy, generally speaking, a big problem, but specifically we, the city government of Evanston, during the era from 1919 to 1969, was involved in perpetuating racial segregation, which of course had all kinds of well-known and well-documented spillover effects in terms of exacerbating the racial wealth gap and, and, and more. And so our feeling is that is a piece of harm that we ourselves as a government uh, participated in advancing and perpetuating and worsening. And so that's something that we have to begin to repair. And, and, and that's what this program is designed to do. Now, the commitment that's been made is for the first $10 million of cannabis tax revenue to go toward reparations. And of that $10 million commitment, only 400000 only the first 4% has been allocated so far. That 4% has gone out uh, specifically to African-American Evanston residents who were living in Evanston at some point during the window from 1919 to 1969. And it's specifically to help them uh, with homeownership as a, let's be honest, initial and small step to repair the damage that was done by the city's perpetuation and the segregationist regimes. That doesn't mean that all of the $10 million will be allocated through the same specific program or with the same eligibility requirements, but that is what's been done so far. So I, I appreciate that general overview of the program, Mayor, and not to get too granular, but just to give a little bit more information about the discrimination and a bit of the particulars. In some of my research, and please correct me if I'm wrong, it, it seemed like um, there were actual like picking up of homes and relocating homes to, for instance, the Fifth Ward in Evanston, um, that there was rezoning to force people out of their homes, rezoning for a residential use to commercial use, and that those were some of the specifics uh, of the program itself. But when you speak about African-Americans, what exactly does that, that term mean? Is that people who are descendants of individuals that were chattel slaves? Is that people who immigrated from Jamaica, island or Caribbean countries? Who qualifies for these benefits? Yeah, it's a great question. They need not be descendants of enslaved people. In fact, you allude to the fact that there are, there are very um, vibrant and well-established immigrant communities from the Caribbean here in Evanston. In fact, that resolution that was passed in, I believe, 2002, was initiated by uh, a then city council member, now a Cook County judge by the name of Lionel Jean-Baptiste, who is uh, really a, a leader in the, the Haitian-American community and uh, was a descendant of two, of two Haitian immigrants. Uh, so the 
reality is that the segregation and the discrimination that was the root cause of what we're trying to repair here was not exclusively uh, done to descendants of enslaved people, but instead was obviously we all know that that race is a, a fiction and a, and a social construct. And yet between the, age, the years of 1919 and 1969, and of course, well before that, our country had a very broad idea about about who was black and and what that meant for uh, for discrimination. And so, because that's the discrimination that we're attempting to repair, it's you know anyone who was uh, treated by the system during that time as a black person and therefore was part of the community that suffered from that discrimination that the city participated in. So, Mayor, I, I have to ask, and I know that you've gotten this question before: Why were cash payments, direct cash payments not given to um, the recipients or the beneficiaries of Evanston's reparation program? Well, there's, so this is a, you're alluding to a kind of significant debate in town, right? So the, the reparations that have been given so far are specifically in the form of housing assistance, assistance to make a down payment or to engage in a, a renovation or upkeep of a home. And there's a lot of questions you could ask about that. The first question is why, even if you accept that it should be in the realm of housing, why uh, home ownership as opposed to, for instance, rental assistance? The next question you might ask is, hey, even if it needs to be in kind help uh, of in some direction, why must it be housing? After all, I'm afraid we've had discrimination in Evanston when it comes to education, when it comes to health care access, when it comes to access to other public services, uh, when it comes to economic opportunity, why would the uh, repair not be in that area? And quite frankly, our reparations committee uh, has discussed other options in those directions. And then the final question is, listen, if we are truly trying to repair the harm, it ought not be the responsibility of the entity that's repairing the harm to decide what the need is at this moment. Why not just make cash payments uh, that uh, can then be utilized by the person who was harmed to determine by themselves on their own without interference from the government that is trying to atone for its past mistakes in determining what the need is. And so that's a, that's a live discussion that, that that is ongoing in our community. There are some practical reasons why the initial decision was to move forward, at least as, an, as a first portion of the program, with housing support rather than cash payments. Uh, part of it is legal. You know, I, I am very conscious of the fact that this is a bar association podcast and I am, well, I bought a book on the LSAT one time, but I, <laughs> I didn't read it. And so that was the end of my legal career. So I'm, I'm sort of, you know, at a, at a disadvantage, let's say, uh, in discussing this, but, but I don't think it will be a surprise to anyone when I say that as the council was on the precipice of passing the reparations program, we got preemptive threats from right-wing legal organizations uh, announcing that they were going to sue us. And, you know, if you look at, for instance, the affirmative action cases that are going before the U.S. Supreme Court, there's ample reason uh, to be cautious in structuring the program in as bulletproof a way as possible, given the expectation that there will be politically motivated lawsuits coming. And so some of the legal advice that, that was received was, you know, listen, in order to have the best shot of being upheld, it would be helpful if the payment that is made tracks the harm that was done as closely as possible to maximize that nexus and 
therefore maximize the, the argument that this is a, a justifiable government program. Uh, there's also been some question about, uh, about uh, tax status. In other words, a cash payment, one would expect, would be subject to taxation, whereas certain types of in-kind support provided by a public sector entity can sometimes be exempt from taxation. And so there was also the feeling that that, that might be a, a reason that would militate in support of providing in-kind help. But I, I have to say that this is an issue that people are still talking about in Evanston, that there's a lot of discussion and there's there's strong views on both sides. And I, I think it will continue to be a live discussion for some time. And because, as I indicated, only 4% of the promised money has actually been allocated so, so far, there's a lot of room left for us to really talk this over and, and determine whether we want the next tranche of, of support to be structured differently than the initial tranche was. You mentioned the $10 million that's anticipated to come from the cannabis tax. Is that likely to manifest? I think I read some recent articles alluding to the fact that maybe those funds won't be as you know reliably forthcoming as a source to fund the program. And you may be needing to look at some other funding sources. And that kind of goes back to the question we were just discussing about, you know, opponents to the program who might threaten lawsuits might argue that allocation of this money on the basis of race violates the equal protection clause. And so in some of the, one of the most recent articles I read, you were even having some debate about, you know, A, where is the money going to come from to continue to fund um, this program and possible future iterations of the program? And then further, how do you protect the city from lawsuits that might come your way on the basis of an equal protection claim. So how, can you comment on that a little bit further? It's two questions, but I'm kind of, it's, it's getting at the same issue, which is like, where's the money going to come from? <laughs> well, I don't, I don't love the second question because again, I don't, I'm not a, law, a lawyer and, and, right. and everybody listening is, and that's just, that's just humiliating. Um, but, but I'll, I'll do my best. You'll just be gentle in your judgments, I hope. So as for the first question, I mean, the money will come because the promise the commitment that's been made and enacted into law is that the first $10 million of revenue will go into the reparations fund. The problem is that that's happening way too slowly. And so many of us, myself, unreservedly included, believe that we need to figure out a mechanism to accelerate the arrival of, of funds into our reparations program so that we can actually do the work that we've promised to do in a timely fashion. I mean, I, I don't think, you know, let's be honest, 1969 was a long time ago. This is a primarily um, relatively elderly group of, of individuals, and that that adds some additional urgency here. There's no there's no question about it. And the, the money is coming in uh, too slowly, uh, just due to really coincidence about where dispensaries happen to be located, which is to say mostly not in Evanston. And so there's just there's just less sales of cannabis occurring in, in Evanston than I think a lot of folks expected. Uh, so we we need to be looking at other alternatives and and we are going to do that. And, you know, as far as protecting ourselves from a lawsuit, I, I don't think we protect ourselves from the existence of a lawsuit. I think we protect ourselves with good program design to ensure that we win a lawsuit. Because again, the the right-wing world being what it is nowadays, that lawsuit is coming and we and we know it and they they threatened anyway, but even if they hadn't, we we could we could guess with a pretty high degree of of confidence. And and so, look, I really don't want to play lawyer here uh, on something as significant and and delicate uh, and high stakes as this. I'll just I'll just repeat that, you know, some of the advice that we had received was about first of all documenting 
the specific concrete role the city itself played in doing harm, and then ensuring that the design of the program is subordinate to that research outcome so that there's a real clear connection between what the city itself did and what this program is now uh, achieving to undo those wrongs that we perpetrated. This is a place to take a quick break and we'll come back for more discussion about reparations in Evanston. Contract automation isn't a trend. It's a strategic imperative. Though big players in the e-sign world will make you believe implementing it will cost you big bucks and more than a few headaches, it doesn't have to be that way. DocuB is an easy-to-onboard, full suite of products and includes e-signature, brilliant workflow capabilities, and AI contract automation at nearly half the price of those out-of-touch behemoths. The one thing DocuB doesn't automate? Their customer service. Visit get.docub.com slash contracts to set up a call with a real live person. DocuB will be with you every step of the way. So we're back. Mayor Biss, in 2022, the median home in Evanston sold for $431,000. The reparations benefit is $25,000. So that's about 6% of a medium home sale in Evanston. Ramona Burton, a reparations recipient, said, it's a start, but I don't think it's enough for all minorities have been put through. It's kind, an apology, or admitting we've been wronged in the past. So it doesn't wipe away what my ancestors had to go through. But, you know, it doesn't hurt. What do you say to constituents like Ramona Burton and others who think that $25,000 is not enough? Yeah, I don't think that there's been any effort to say that this is the end of the story. I think this is an initial step. I think it's enormously significant, both as a concrete, unmistakable, you know, in writing acknowledgement of wrongdoing and also an assumption, therefore, on our shoulders of the responsibility of repairing that harm. I think that's a really important thing to do. I don't think that the money that we've given out so far finishes that job at all. $25,000 was was chosen because it's, you know, by those numbers you gave, it's relatively significant. So for example, if if you uh, would need to put 10% down on a home, uh, it would by itself enable you to purchase a $250,000 home where it would be uh, the majority of uh, a down payment on what you described as a median uh, home sold in Evanston. So so it's a significant step towards someone who's seeking to be able to make that down payment, but that's, that's, that is all it is. And I think if we were to say, hey, listen, mission accomplished, we're all done, pat ourselves on the back and move on, we would be making a, a terrible, terrible mistake. Uh, and, and I'm pleased to say that I haven't met anybody in Evanston who is suggesting that that's the case. In terms of just, you know, effectuating the program, I, I'm curious. I know we've been talking about it in generalities, but 
what is this actually looking like for your office? Like who's overseeing the process of reviewing these applications? How many applications have you seen so far? And then how many from among those who have applied actually qualify and have have received the funds? Where does that stand at this current moment? So we've initially had several hundred applications and only had funding to give the first six, sorry, the first 16 reparation awards to to recipients. And so there's a tremendous, tremendous demand and a tremendous need and and frankly, a long line of people who are qualified uh, and who we would like to be providing the support to. And that's why the uh, really slow arrival of the cannabis sales tax revenue is really a problem for us. Uh, So this was really an all-hands-on-deck effort. We had a lot of people, particularly in our library system, uh, support residents in filling out the applications, do archival work and history, right? Because you've got to prove that you or perhaps one of your ancestors lived in Evanston during a period of time that was, you know, north of 50 years ago. That's not it's not always easy for people to establish. So there was historical and archival work that had to be done. Uh, so we had people from from throughout the city government uh, supporting the application process itself. We have internal staff who did the reading and assessment of the evaluations. Not only uh, people who focus on this program, but also you know our, our broader housing staff uh, were critical in assessing eligibility. And you know the key lesson is there's a lot of need. And, and we don't yet have the funding that we have to have in order to meet that need. And so there's, there's really an urgency that we feel toward finding the revenue required to get the job done. I want to talk a little bit more about some of the potential revenue sources. But before getting there, I'm curious, how does one prove up the ancestral qualifications to qualify for this? So is there documentation that's required or... You know, is the city being flexible with people bringing in various pieces of archival information to establish their qualification for the stipend? Yeah, that's right. It's not it's not like your uh, passport application where you got to bring one thing from column A and one thing from column B and the list is the list. You know, there was there was looking through old newspapers information, you know, and and other kind of kind of almost circumstantial archival information that, that could be found. And it's actually a really interesting conversation. You might want to have a discussion with someone from our library about, about you know, some of those, those stories and, and, and how that was established. Um, but it's a tricky issue because you, you, of course, need to enforce the eligibility requirements, but you can't be overly rigid and you certainly can't be overly prescriptive about something like this. Otherwise, you're just going to, in error, exclude people who are absolutely entitled to participate in the program. Right. Because I imagine it would be, I mean, people weren't anticipating that they were going to have to, you know, prove that they were living in this certain period or descendant of a person, you know, it's. Yeah, I mean, I think about my parents, right? I wasn't alive before 1967, but my parents were. And I, I think about their ability to prove that they resided where they resided in 1968. You know, do they have whatever. Do they have uh, canceled checks from the rent they paid in 1968? Of course not. It's not easy. You know, you have to kind of cobble things together, perhaps from letters that you saved, um, you know, or from from kind of information from groups that you were associated with, um, you know, stuff like that. 
And so the city of Evanston is in fact providing sort of administrative assistance to citizens and helping them cobble together this information. It sounds like, well, that's, I mean, that's good to hear. Cause when I first heard about this, I was like, how, how are people even going to, people don't save their utility bills from, you know, 50 years ago. Or even three years ago in my right. case. Right, <laughs> exactly. No, that's right. And you know, if you, when you, when, I, when I've spoken to some of our, our um, library employees, I mean, they found it to be some of the most meaningful and powerful work they've done for the city. One thing that's been wonderful about this is this is a, a shared mission. And, you know, when you go talk about reparations in most of the country, you know, there's all kinds of people who think it's a bad idea, who think that that's all in the past. Why are we, why are my tax dollars going to fund that now? It's, it's very controversial. You know, frankly, I think back not so long ago to the Democratic presidential primary of 2020, when you had tons and tons of candidates who took all kinds of positions on all kinds of issues, but most of them were very scared to say the word reparations. And so, in a lot of the country, this is unfortunately, in my opinion, uh, kind of a political third rail or really controversial. But in, in Evanston, it's been a tough issue on any number of levels, but there isn't an organized constituency that's saying, don't do this at all. It's a bad idea. We should not be spending uh, public dollars to repair the harm that was caused. And, and instead, people have really come together to try to make it work. And just anecdotally speaking, I, I appreciate hearing about the flexibility that Evanston has been using in implementing this program. Um, just speaking for my own relatives, I have a grandparent who didn't have a social security number, came from the South, and when it was time for that grandparent to retire, they had to go back and get an affidavit from a, a pastor in the town to attest to their age, just because at, at the time in the South, African-Americans weren't being given a social security number. So it's good to hear that there is flexibility. And then speaking about flexibility, we've kind of been using the the term uh, housing assistance. And I'm curious, what exactly does that mean? So someone needs to have their roof repaired. Could the reparation benefits be used for that? If somebody has fallen behind in their mortgage payments, can reparations be used for that? Or is it just to uh, fund a down payment on a home? Uh, I believe it's specifically for down payment or improvements and renovations. Uh, so they're, you know, they're in, and they've been used in both categories, the the assistance that's been given out. And, and that's part of why our housing team had to be a part of qualifying people and qualifying projects and so forth. Um, but the idea is to be to be relatively flexible, you know, within this particular category of potential recipients. You mentioned that this is a hot hot topic sort of on the national level. It was debated in the presidential primary. And, you know, I think there's been some advocates at the federal level who are trying to push this forward, but I'm curious to know, have you been contacted by any other cities who are looking to potentially implement something similar on a like local regional level? Um, And if so, how have those discussions panned out or what are you seeing trend-wise with other cities? Because I I did read there were other cities that were considering implementing something similar. Yeah, there are a number of communities that are moving forward. I mean, even just locally here, I've had really good conversations with the Cook County Task Force uh, about this. Amherst, Massachusetts is looking at this. I believe Asheville, North Carolina is making progress. And, you know, Robin Ruth Simmons, who I mentioned before, she's no longer on the city council. She's, uh, since leaving the council, uh, created an organization called First Repair uh, to essentially advocate and educate communities across the country on these options. And so there's a number of different communities that are at different stages of 
you know, considering or studying or creating a task force or perhaps even beginning to move forward. And then at the same time, as you indicate, the, the discussion is making real progress on the national level. House Resolution 40 has been introduced in every every Congress for decades, but it, it now is really poised uh, to be a, a genuine live issue, not not one that's going to get, you know, 60 votes in the U.S. Senate that we have at this minute, but one that's really a live issue with with adequate support to be to be something that that really, really could be in the offing. This ordinance for reparations passed with a eight to one council vote, I believe, um, maybe before you were uh, sworn in. And the one dissenting vote was from uh, Alderwoman Cicely Fleming. Um, she's a black alderwoman and she traces her Evanston lineage to the early 20th century. She supported reparations, um, but said Evanston's plan was only a housing plan dressed up as reparations. What are your thoughts about people who believe that calling this plan reparations is a misnomer? Well, I don't think that I'm really the person with the qualifications or credibility to declare for others what constitutes reparations. Certainly the great majority of people uh, have looked at this and said this is a reparations program. Some people say this is a great reparations program. Others say it's a reparations program that should perhaps be structured differently. Uh, And some say that it isn't a reparations program for any number of reasons, uh, one of which is that because it's not a, a program of cash payments, it shouldn't be called reparations. You know, this, this is a discussion that I listen to, that I listen to with an open mind, that I, I always try to learn from. I guess the one thing I would say on this specific question is what the program definitely is, is one that you only qualify for if you are yourself or were a descendant of someone who was harmed in this specific race-based way. And so that's not a housing program because a housing program wouldn't have an eligibility criterion like that. And so if it isn't reparations, if the determination made by the affected community that really should be the one driving this conversation is that it doesn't count as reparations unless it's a cash payment, then we got to figure out what to call it. Because it is it is a program that you're only eligible for if you have been harmed and therefore it's an effort to repair that harm that was caused. That's the foundational aspect of what this is and what it's what it's trying to achieve. You know, I wanted to circle back on the funding question because I think that's kind of the X factor right now, right? I mean, what are some prospective sources to fund the program? Does Evanston have any visions of expanding the program and going beyond the housing sphere? So that's question number one. And then question number two is, how would you define success in the context of this program? And do you think you're meeting that benchmark or um, at what point do you think you will have met that benchmark? So all options are on the table when it comes to revenue. I mean, there is even a proposal introduced by one city council member just to transfer general fund balance into the reparations fund. I think you alluded earlier to some of the legal discussion that ensued around, around that proposal. There's been talk about other revenue sources. There's been talk about utilizing uh, the Federal Rescue Plan Act funding. Uh, There's been a lot of uh, exploration of partnerships with other institutions in the community. After all, uh, I'm afraid that the city government itself is very far from the only institution in the community that has uh, participated in these acts of white supremacy and that caused harm that needs to be repaired. And so some of our peer institutions, I think, have a role to play here. So, So all options are on the table our goal should be to raise the funds needed to do the work as quickly as possible. And that, that's certainly 
uh, my goal. The reparations committee is really the body that drives the recommendations for how each successive tranche of funding would be utilized. There's a tension here. I mean, for goodness sake, hundreds of people applied and met the eligibility criteria for this initial program and only 16 received funding. So there's a, a strong desire to continue going down that list, but there's also a lot of other ideas of how the funding could potentially be utilized. And uh, I'm certainly not interested in dictating to the reparations committee what determination they come to, uh, but there's there's a lot of uh, different ways of thinking about that, that that they're going to be grappling with shortly as the next tranche of, of funding is allocated. When it comes to success, I'm an outcomes-minded person. I mean, the fundamental issue here is that we have these very significant inequities in concrete measures like wealth, like income, like health, like educational attainment, like access to public amenities and public services in Evanston today. And we believe that the city government's bad acts played a role in contributing to that reality. To me, the reparations program succeeds when those gaps begin to narrow, when the actual lived experience of Black Evanstonians is truly on equal footing with those of the community at large. And I think we can see progress uh, toward that goal, but we've got most of the way left to go. And with that, we'll take another break and come back with Stranger Than Legal Fiction. Getting legal malpractice insurance doesn't have to be complicated. Let CBA Insurance Agency do the heavy lifting for you. We shop to the top carriers to find the best rates. Get a free quote by visiting cbainsurance.org. Seeking to expand your legal network, sharpen your skills, and obtain free CLE? Unless you plan on being a professional failure, that's probably a good idea. Join the Chicago Bar Association today and connect with lawyers and judges who lead Chicago's legal community. The CBA will help you expand your personal and professional networks while providing practical programs and resources that meet your specific practice needs. New lawyer membership starts at just $82 a year. Learn more at www.chicagobar.org. And we're back with a game we call Stranger Than Legal Fiction. Our audience knows the rules. They are pretty simple. Jen and I have done research. We've pulled a real law and made up another law. We'll quiz each other to see who can distinguish between legal fact and fiction. Mayor Biss, are you ready? Let's just say the answer is yes. (laughs) (laughs) Love that enthusiasm. How about you, Jen? I'm always ready for this one, um, but you know it's always it's always a treat when the guest gets it right and we get it wrong. It's it, it makes it more fun for them. So I'll lead off with mine. So you know Maggie's kind of explained the rules here, but I'm going to read one law that's real and one law that's not real. Both you and Maggie are going to give your best guess, and then we're going to see who who succeeded at this. So the first law is in. Tennessee, according to their state constitution, you cannot hold public office if you've been in a duel. That's that's option number one. Option number two is in South Carolina, if you are found or caught seducing an unmarried woman, 
you can be found guilty of a misdemeanor. So option number one, Tennessee constitution, not allowed to hold public office if you've engaged in a duel. Option number two, South Carolina, you cannot seduce an unmarried woman, otherwise face possible criminal liability. Which one is it? Mayor Biss, I'll let you guess first. They both sound so believable. <laughs> oh, this is, you know, I'm so, I want to pick Tennessee so badly, but I, I'm going to, I'm going to be conservative and go with South Carolina. Maggie, your guess? I think Tennessee is a true law and the Carolina law is a fake law. Okay. Well, Maggie, you are correct. However, the South Carolina law was a real law until 2016 when it was repealed. So it used to be, you know, a misdemeanor to seduce an unmarried woman in South Carolina. The Tennessee Constitution still has a provision prohibiting one from uh, holding public office if you have fought in a duel. So, you know, good, good to know in case you're ever planning on running for office in Tennessee. But, you know, hopefully we're not fighting in duels anymore, but still on the books nonetheless. Better safe than sorry. <laughs> I was just living in the past. I was, you know, I was, I was six years too late. Well, hey, look, it wasn't that long ago, shockingly. So you were pretty close. <laughs> yeah, I like that caveat at, at the engine. <laughs> Maggie has the advantage because she's a former prosecutor here. So she kind of has a good <laughs> sense for, <laughs> for what kinds of crazy and arcane laws may still be on the books in, in certain jurisdictions. Um, but Maggie, your turn now. Let's see. Let's see if you can stump us. Sure. So I'm going to mix it up a bit this time. Um, I'm going to go with multiple choice instead of true or false. So <laughs> give me a bit of leeway. The Crown Act, which stands for uh, Create Respectful and Open World for Natural Hair, bans discrimination based on hair texture or style. A form of the act has passed in a number of states with California and New York, no surprise, being the first in 2019 to pass a version of the Crown Act. I'm going to give you guys three states and pick out the one that you believe has not passed the Crown Act so far. The three states are going to be Nebraska, Tennessee, and Georgia. Which one of those three states do you believe has not passed a version of the Crown Act? Hmm. Mayor, I'll let you go first. <laughs> I'm going to, again, just try to do this in a, well, I, I'm going to go with Nebraska. What do you think, Jen? You know what? I'm going to agree. I feel like it's probably the least populous state. And I feel like they probably just have less laws in general that are like. Although it's the only state with a unicameral legislature. So it should be easier to pass laws there. Mm. Do you want to change your mind, Mayor? Are you sticking with Nebraska? I'm sticking with Nebraska. Okay. Okay. When I was doing some research into this, I was quite surprised to find that both Nebraska and Tennessee had passed Crown Act uh, legislation, but not Georgia, um, especially when you think of uh, Atlanta being kind of the black mecca of the South. But no, the Crown Act has not passed in Georgia, but it has passed in Nebraska, Tennessee, and thankfully Illinois. But Mayor Biss, I knew you would know that one, so <laughs> I did throw you a softball there. This was not a success. I feel uh, you guys got to invite me back and I'll, uh, I'll do more homework in advance of my next visit. 
Um, you know, I, I've avoided the crossfire this time. Definitely the last time I was asked questions, I got both of them wrong. So <laughs> <laughs> you're not alone in this, Mayor. Um, it's intended to stump you. That's the thing. And what we've learned with doing this for however many years we have is that usually the weirder it is, the more likely it is to be true. And I probably that's probably just our kind of twisted minds trying to come up with the the harder uh, the harder Q and A for the game. So it's it's all in good fun at the end of the day. Well, thank you for including me. Thank you, Mayor, for joining us today. This was a stimulating conversation. I also want to thank my co-host and executive producer, Jen Byrne, Adam Lockwood on sound, and everyone at the Legal Talk Network family. Remember, you can follow us and send us comments, questions, episode ideas, or just troll us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at CBA at the bar, all one word. You can also email us at podcast at chicagobar.org. Please rate us and leave us your feedback on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, Audible, or wherever you download your podcasts. It helps us get the word out. Until next time, from everyone here at the CBA, thank you for joining us, and we'll see you soon at the bar.